0: This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic Churches on February 27, 2022, on the Church's calendar that's the 8th Sunday in Ordinary Time. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here hoping to clear away some of the obstacles of time, translation, and cultural differences that can hide the deeper insights that Scripture holds. I'm using published works of genuine Scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators in this effort, but fair warning, all this information is sifted through my own tiny brain. You can find the Scripture readings on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select prayer, and worship. And from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. I'm struggling to get comfortable with a unifying theme between this week's first reading from the Hebrew Scriptures and the Gospel for this Mass. It's usually much clearer to me than in this case. Here's part of my problem. Remember last week's emphasis on not judging others? Well, this week... It seems that both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Gospel passage offer advice on how to judge others. I suppose alternatively one could say that this week is about standards for extending trust to others and forming reasonable expectations of them. Okay, we'll go with that. Hold that thought, and I'll begin with neither of those two, but with the second reading. We're still in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We're at the conclusion of the 15th chapter and getting our final look at this letter for now. Paul is still describing resurrection, its after effects for faithful disciples, and urging sustained loyalty to continuing the Christian mission. This passage is fairly short and at first glance reasonably straightforward. I'll read it first and then take a look at some noteworthy aspects of it. A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, When this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility, and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, steadfast, always fully devoted to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Let's look first at some information that we in the 21st century don't necessarily have that affects the reading of what Paul wrote in the 1st century. The first thing, of course, I suppose, is obvious. In that the opening lines here are Paul referring to the resurrected bodies of Jesus' followers when he writes of the mortal and corruptible being clothed in incorruptibility and immortality. The use of being clothed imagery has deep roots in Hebrew literature for depicting divine characteristics or blessings brought to humanity. One midrash refers to the clothing of Adam and Eve as garments of light. But please do not mistake this for a mere change in appearance. The image is of complete transformation. Paul uses this imagery many times in his letters, and the outstanding image in the Gospels is perhaps the radiant garment of Jesus at the time of his transfiguration. Second, Please know that the phrase, the word that is written, is a reference to prophecies of both Isaiah and Hosea, each about 800 years before Paul. A most helpful tidbit, not easily teased out from this text, concerns the, "O death, where is your victory, where is your sting, which hearkens back to Hosea. The analogy in use here is most probably that of a scorpion's sting, Death is a scorpion, and sin is the poison from its stinger that causes death in the human." That language always sounded way too melodramatic for me before understanding that we're talking about a scorpion. Makes it much more understandable, don't you think? Finally, it's worth noting that Paul is interpreting Hosea in a very distinctive way to make his point about resurrection. In the context of Hosea's prophecy, the scorpion is being called on by God to punish the wayward Israelites. Paul flips the meaning from a triumphant claim that death makes into a defiant challenge based on the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, defeating the scorpion, defeating death. Weaving that allusion to Hosea into his message, Paul is doing what he does often— he attaches the new Christian understanding of living in faithful service to God with a firm anchor point in Hebrew Scriptures, the beloved tradition of the Jewish people. Paul then exhorts the Corinthian community to maintain enthusiasm and energy, knowing that work on behalf of the gospel will not be, cannot be, futile. On a practical, human level, it's also obvious that most people do fear death. Most fear it because, for them, it is a complete unknown. It's unknown for me, too, as far as the kind of details with which my physical self seems preoccupied. Now it's time to back up in the progression of the liturgy to the first reading. This week it's from the book of Sirach. We don't hear often from this book in our regular Sunday holy day cycle. The book of Sirach is counted among the wisdom books in the Bible of both the Catholic and Orthodox churches. It was excluded from the canon of Protestant Bibles because at the time of that action, no copies had been found that were written in Hebrew. The earliest texts then known were of a Greek translation of the original. From that it was assumed that it had been written in Greek, which placed its authenticity in doubt. Beginning in 1896 and continuing to the present day, however, numerous partial copies of the original Hebrew text have been found. Together they supply so far about two-thirds of the total known work. There is a foreword to the work written by the author's grandson, which is included in Catholic Bibles. Although it is not accepted as a part of the divinely inspired canon, this forward is important and holds much antiquity, therefore it's included as an edifying bit of literature. If you're trying to read along in your Bible and you can't find this Sirach, it might be because this book has a lot of different names. Depending on your version of the Bible, it might be called The Wisdom of Jesus, the Son of Sirach. The Wisdom of Sirach. The Book of Sirach, Ben Sirach, Liber Ecclesiastius, The Book of Ecclesiasticus. These two previous titles mean simply Church Book, or it's often simply called Sirach. By the way, the Ecclesiasticus titles should not be confused with The Book of Ecclesiastes, which is an entirely different work. Ecclesiastes is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Kohalith. The Ecclesiasticus and Ecclesiastes confusion gets multiplied in my little mind because Ecclesiastes is where one finds some more of that melodramatic language, this one, the vanity of vanities stuff. The name Sirach is derived from the book's author, Jesus, son of Eleazar, son of Sirach. It was written beginning around 200 B.C. until about 175 B.C. It is not included among the books of the Hebrew Bible, which is believed to have been finalized at about the same time that Sirach was begun. The author lived in Jerusalem and was clearly a wise and careful observer of the law, temple worship, the priesthood, and life in general during his time. The book contains a steady supply of maxims dealing with individual conduct and spiritual path as it affects the relationship between family members, community members, and God. Although it does not appear often in our three-year lectionary cycle, the book does have a significant influence throughout the church's liturgical prayer. This Sunday's short passage deals with dangers to one's integrity using three short comparisons about the content of one's words. The first image, a sieve. A sieve was used to separate the husk from the kernel of a grain. Shaking the grain in the sieve, the useless husk covering separated from the kernel's, which passed through the sieve. In this analogy the content of a person's speech is sifted for truth. The faults in one's words show themselves like the useless husks caught in the sieve, taken away by a breeze. Image two, a potter's mold in the furnace. Whatever a clay artisan produces on their pottery wheel is only as good as what it can withstand in the kiln. It is the application of intense heat that changes the malleable clay into a worthwhile vessel. In the same way, human character is molded and transformed by heat of testing or tribulation. Inferior clay or defects in the artisan's molding will not stand up to the heat. Good character, however, is transformed into something better through testing and trial. Finally, image three, fruit. Gardeners know a fruit tree requires more than sunlight, fair weather, and water. They require regular fertilizing, the soil kept healthy, the tree protected from pests and disease. Then there will be a harvest of edible fruit. The analogy? A person's speech discloses their commitment to careful preparation and truth. The final verse is a summation of the wisdom offered Here is the reading from the book of Sirach. When a sieve is shaken, the husks appear, so do one's faults when one speaks. As the test of what the potter molds is in the furnace, so in tribulation is the test of the just. The fruit of a tree shows the care it has had, so too does one's speech Disclose the bent of one's mind. Praise no one before he speaks, for it is then that people are tested. The Word of the Lord. My high school coach in competitive debate said this less gently when she advised us, It is better to remain silent and allow others to suspect you are either ignorant or stupid or both than to speak and remove all doubt. She was highly skilled in the art of deflating overstuffed high school egos. Taking a quick look at the responsorial of the Mass, we find components of Psalm 92. This is a hymn of thanksgiving to God and is identified also as a Sabbath song. While psalms of thanksgiving are often explicit in identifying the events or works for which the psalmist is grateful, this one does not do that. It is a general proclamation that praise of God itself is desirable and merited. Once again, as was the case last week, the psalmist elevates the praise by making it praise of God's name rather than a direct address to God. This is another instance of the power of one's name so much practiced in that time. There are hints at formal worship settings. I suppose that's one reason for the designation Sabbath song. One hint comes in the reference to praise at dawn and through the night, as at some vigil service. Another comes in the terms House of the Lord and Courts of God with their connotation of the great temple. Taken together, the imagery employed here evokes a general expression of joy and privilege at being in a covenant relationship with God. Here is the responsorial for the day. Lord, it is good to give thanks to you. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name most high, to proclaim your goodness at dawn and your faithfulness throughout the night. Lord, it is good to give thanks to you. The just one shall flourish like the palm tree, like a cedar of Lebanon shall he grow. They that are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Lord, it is good to give thanks to you. They shall bear fruit, even in old age, vigorous and sturdy shall they be, declaring how just is the Lord my rock, in whom there is no wrong. Lord, it is good to give thanks to you. The Gospel at this Mass is from the sixth chapter of Luke, continuing his record of Jesus offering the Sermon on the Plain. We have a series of admonitions in this passage. In them, Jesus is letting anyone who wants to be his follower glimpse the principles that should govern their lives. In this section of the sermon, his technique follows the wisdom tradition of Hebrew teaching. His metaphors are life experience and nature-based. The section opens with a couple rhetorical questions. Can one who is blind lead another who is blind? And won't they both take a tumble? Well, no and yes, in that order. What's the point? Context is important to understand here what's being said. I think the clue is in what Jesus says next about teachers and disciples. I hear those first questions as saying, one cannot share the gospel with others or lead others to it unless one knows where they are going, knows the way very well, and is committed wholeheartedly to the task. Some commentators interpret this to be a slap at the wayward teachings from scribes and Pharisees of the time. The rest of the passage, however, makes no reference to this. It's solely addressed to those who would follow Jesus, cautioning them to be watchful and faithful in their own behavior. Keeping in mind this is directly addressed to His disciples, One can hear Jesus admonishing at least some of them for being too quick to criticize or correct others while being guilty themselves of ignorance or error and failing to notice their own shortcomings. That Jesus uses analogies based around fruit-bearing trees would ring true and be effective in the agrarian setting where they all live. The nature of the plant is displayed outwardly by the fruit that it yields. Likewise, the heart of a person is revealed in the good or the evil that results from their works. There is perhaps a double warning in all this. First, be watchful so that you do not follow, to use Jesus' imagery, blind teachers, and second... Be sure you do not become such a dangerous pretender when you are in a position of leading others. From Sirach, we read of the revelatory character of one's speech. Much as Jesus taught earlier in this gospel, the heart is revealed at least partially in one's words. Now Jesus has moved the goalpost in a way. Listen, yes but also be watchful and examine the results of one's works. The one whose fruitful actions match her fine words demonstrates integrity. The inner character is externalized in action. But the one whose fine words precede only harm, loss, or barrenness is a hypocrite. The lie is made visible by the result that comes about. Overall, this lesson in integrity moves from noting the need for a match between one's inner motivations and values with the words one speaks. Speech, however, cannot be judged honest when the actions of the speaker do not fit together with his words. I'm going to apologize in advance for my untrained pronunciation of a Hebrew word but there is value in noting here that the Hebrew word dabar means both word and deed. That, writes scripture scholar Sister Diane Bergant, is no accident. I'll end with an excerpt from her summary comments on this Sunday's scriptures. She writes, We have come to understand orthodoxy as meaning correct." Teaching, However, the word itself comes from two Greek words, one meaning right, orthos, the second meaning glory, doxa. Orthodoxy, or right praise, is that which is both spoken and done at the same time. It identifies an integrity measured by right correspondence between speech and action. In form, the responsorial psalm is a hymn of praise, an expression of this kind of orthodoxy. It declares that it is by a righteous life itself, and not merely through prayers of praise, that God is glorified. And here she quotes St. Irenaeus to amplify the point. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. Then comes the question, of course, how do we get there? To a life fully realized. Paul gave us more than just a little hint today. Transformation is possible, not by our own merits or efforts, but through the power of the resurrection, as it is manifest in every aspect of our lives going forward. Oh, there's that homily button getting pushed again. Time to stop. This coming Wednesday, March 2nd, is the beginning of the season of Lent. If you feel like you have to cram a two-month supply of fun and frivolity into Fat Tuesday, give that a second thought. Don't let it become just another hangover. Lent is a season of introspection, that's true, but it holds more opportunities to grow in spirit than it holds occasions to accuse and berate oneself. Thanks for lending your ear today. May you see ever more clearly the blessings of our loving God in your life.